So hello, um, good afternoon uh, from uh, Singapore. Uh, my name is Aisha Al-Sarihi. Um, I am a research fellow at the Middle East Institute at the NUS. I'm very delighted to welcome you all uh, to this webinar titled the COP27 and the Middle East um, uh, from ambitious climate uh, bridges to action. Um, this webinar is co-organized with the LSE Middle East Center, and we are delighted to have with us today uh, Dr. Michael Mason, the director of the LSE Middle East Center, who graciously supported the co-organization uh, of this uh, webinar and who will convene as a moderator later on in the second panel uh, of uh, in today's webinar. Uh, in terms of the focus uh, of today's uh, webinar, uh, as the title, we will look at the COP27 and the Middle East. And uh, uh, actually, um, instead of focusing on what will happen at the COP27, which will take place next month in Egypt, in Sharm el-Sheikh, between the 6th and the 18th of November, which is in less than uh, two weeks from now, uh, we would not um, focus on uh, the key issues that will be negotiated in the COP. Rather, we would like to take the opportunity uh, in this webinar to really look at what is happening in the ground. What, is the, um, what are the key climate challenges that face the Middle East countries? And I really would like uh, to call this COP um, since it's taken place in Egypt as a Middle East COP. So we, we like to take the opportunity uh, to look at what's happening on the ground. What are the key uh, climate challenges that face the Middle East countries? What are the implementation measures that have been undertaken so far? And what are the implementation gaps out there as well as the solutions that uh, could help fulfilling um, those gaps. And for that, uh, I am very delighted to be joined today with esteemed speakers from different Middle East countries. Uh, um, we do have uh, speakers from, e uh, from uh, the UAE, from Bahrain, from Sudan, uh, from Lebanon, uh, as well as our colleagues from London. So thank you very much for, for your time uh, and for your participation. Uh, I do also uh, uh, would like to take this opportunity to uh, uh, also thank uh, the speakers who have contributed to the Insight series, the COP27 Insight series, which have been, so far we have published uh, four papers uh, and they are available online uh, on our website. So anyone who is uh, watching us, I really invite you to go and read. They cover different aspects uh, of climate uh, issues uh, concerning, for example, the water, uh, the, the extreme weather events, even the impact of climate change on, on tourism, uh, as well as the finance um, and how the uh, Middle East countries can tackle uh, extreme weather events. So with that, and before I kick off the first panel uh, for today, uh, I want to just give a, a little bit of hands on the structure of today's panel. So uh, our webinar, we do have 
two panels today, uh, and we have two hours. So each uh, panel will uh, will be covered in one hour, and we do have three speakers uh, per panel. Each speaker will be given six to eight minutes uh, to give uh, opening remarks. And after that, we will open the floor for the questions. So uh, all of those who are uh, joining us, uh, if you have any questions, uh, please feel free to post them in the chat box so we can take them from there. And if you know uh, the, the name of the speaker that you are directing the question to, please feel free to put the name so we know to whom the question is posed. So with that, I'm, uh, I'm happy to uh, kick off uh, the first panel for today, which is uh, focusing on the adaptation of climate change uh, in the Middle East. And we would look at the key climate challenges that face uh, Middle East countries. We will look at the water and the food security challenges. Uh, we will look at the finance of the climate change as well as the citizen uh, involvement in addressing climate change. And for that, I do have uh, three esteemed speakers, which I'm going to introduce shortly. First of all, uh, we do have Dr. Nadim Farajallah, who is the director uh, of the Climate Change and the Environment Program at the American University of Beirut, Islam Paris Institute for Public Policy and International Affairs. Uh, in Lebanon. Uh, Dr. Farajallah worked in the private sector and focused on um, different uh, issues uh, concerning the water resources, uh, the infrastructure, environmental impact studies and management plans, as well as hydrological studies, uh, erosion and assessment and mitigation. Uh, Dr. Farajallah is the founder and head of the land water an environment department at the consulting firm SET uh, International with projects in Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Iraq, Egypt, and Oman. Uh, Dr. Farajallah uh, uh, gained his PhD in environmental engineering uh, from the University of Oklahoma. Secondly, uh, I would like also to welcome uh, Mustafa Bayoumi, who is a, a research fellow at the Energy, Climate Change and Sustainable Development at the Anwar Gargas uh, Diplomatic Academy, uh, or AGDA. Uh, before joining AGDA, uh, uh, Mustafa worked as a re, uh, an associate researcher at Mohammed bin Rashid School uh, Government, where he led sustainable development policy uh, research. He holds a master's degree in sustainable development from Uppsala University from Sweden. His research interests include energy transition and adaptation to climate impacts in the MENA region. Last but not least, uh, uh, I would like also to welcome Dean Sharp, uh, who is a visiting uh, fellow in human geography and environment at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Um, Dr. Dean uh, was previously uh, a postdoctoral fellow at the Aga Khan Program for Islamic Architecture at the MIT and the co-director of the Thierry Form uh, Center for Advanced Urban Research. He's the co-editor of two books, uh, uh, including the Beyond the Square, Urbanism and the Arab Uprising. And the most recently uh, published book, Open Gaza, uh, uh, 
published by the American University in Cairo, Press Anti-Reform. Uh, Dr. Uh, Dean has published in top-ranked journals, including Progress in Human Geography and Urban Studies. With that, uh, now I would give the floor to our speakers. Uh, we will start with Dr. Nadim Farajallah uh, to give uh, his remarks, and then we will move to Mustafa, and then uh, finally Nadim. Uh, uh, sorry, Dean. Uh, so Nadim, uh, I give the floor to you. Uh, thank you, Aisha, for this and uh, for the invitation. It's a privilege for me to be amongst such an esteemed panel of speakers. And it's very nice to see some uh, uh, familiar faces here. Uh, I, I would like to start by, I will not take too much time. I'll just start with giving my thoughts on a few things uh, pertaining to the situation regarding climate change and its impacts on the region that we live in. Allow me to start saying by saying that I believe the term Middle East is a false construct. And we should, especially as when we speak regarding uh, climate change and uh, environmental issues, Middle East, every all countries uh, being lumped together and different parts of this uh, region being lumped together is wrong. Uh, let's start by the governance structures. They differ greatly from one country to another. There are some cultural differences that permeate, that give each country and each region its distinct characteristic. But most importantly, most importantly, there are geographic differences that have uh, relations to climatological dissimilarities. Through our work here at uh, the Isam Ferris Institute and over the years that we've worked, uh, we've managed sort of to align the, the region into four basic regions. We've got the Arabian Peninsula, which comprises of Bahrain, Kuwait, Oman, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Yemen. They have mostly, mostly uh, similar uh, geographies, similar climatic conditions. Yemen and Oman are a little bit different and more close, closer to the Horn of Africa. The Levant or Mashre, and this, by this definition, I just want to restrict it to Iraq, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, and Palestine. They have their own uh, physiography, geography, and the climatic conditions in most parts of this region are similar. And then you can go to the Maghreb, which is Libya, Algeria, Morocco, and Tunisia. The Nile is, a, is an entity in and of itself, and it is unique in this setting for several reasons. Within this uh, construct, if you will, or within this distribution, uh, I just want to point out some of the impacts that we are, at, for me at least, are of most concern and they have not really been addressed or will, uh, uh, we have not paid enough attention to. The Arabian Peninsula is suffering and will suffer from temperature increases that are going beyond livability at some point. Uh, IPCC AR6, the assessment report six, uh, estimates using the RCP 8.5 that seven degrees Celsius increase of extreme temperature can be realized by 2100. And this, is, uh, this makes life unlivable, basically. 
the current intensity and frequency of hot extremes are increasing. And we've seen this, and we've seen the dust storms that are becoming more frequent and more intense. And this is also coupled with extreme events of precipitation that occur with uh, cyclones coming on land, touching land and creating different uh, sorts of causing havoc and damage. The major problem for the Levant, for example, for me is not uh, particularly associated with temperature increase directly. Temperature increase is a major problem. But what is happening is the extent and the intensity of droughts, severe droughts. And this has, uh, has had some cascading effects onto other aspects of life in this region. And uh, I'll, I'll touch upon this in, in, in a second. Uh, the mother, uh, again, temperature increases and nearing seven degrees Celsius is, is, not, un, is not unforeseen. And the heat waves over the Southern Mediterranean are going to be uh, increasing greatly. And this is similarly felt in the Nile countries. However, the Nile, the, 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 the monkey wrench in all of this is that uh, there is no conclusive uh, study that, or, or, or conversion of studies that uh, indicate how the Nile is going to be affected by climate change. Some studies say it will, the flow will increase, others say the flow will decrease. So this is in, uh, roughly the, what, what we uh, are, are looking at. And uh, some of what we are looking forward to in, in, in COP27, and a whole list has been set up, why we know we need to make sure that the financing mechanism for loss and damage is set and in place, and we need to scale up support for adaptation and uh, make sure that the $100 billion uh, a year is met and enforced and maybe added to. All of this is well and good, but uh, still up in the air. And what's causing us more grief is the associated uh, political uh, uh, security situation that's being experienced around the world with different ramifications in, uh, uh, the, or, or reflecting poorly on our region. Basically, this region, I, I prefer the term West Asia, North Africa, uh, is, is, is not ready and not fully geared up to adaptation. We are not putting in enough money. We are not building up capacity. We are uh, reverting to knee-jerk reactions and at times cosmetic uh, uh, projects that make us look good, but really do not give us the, the support that we need to face the future. Food security has been uh, uh, on a concern for food security has been on the rise uh, recently because of the Ukraine crisis. And this reflects, for example, on Egypt. Egypt said they want to increase wheat production by 50% so that they can meet most of their local needs internally without having to import. That means that they will uh, need to ir increase irrigated land. Where will that water come from? Okay, that's an issue, especially now with the GERD, with the, uh, with the GERD being co completed and the, the, the tension between Ethiopia and Egypt over the Nile water, this is, where is this going to lead us? Why has this not been looked at before? 
we are always two generations late if I am if I want to be really nasty but maybe a generation late if I want to be generous Iraq's water crisis right now it is in part due to the drought that the region is experiencing but more importantly it's because adaptation measures uh, have not been incorporated not only in Iraq but in Turkey and Iran which control the headwaters of the Tigris and the Euphrates and this is reflecting not not only poorly on these two countries but on Iraq and Syria as well and we've seen movements of people and uh, tensions rising because of this i will finance i will fi finalize my uh, remarks here with uh, go looking into our my my home country lebanon we've known all along that our reliance on fossil fuel in a country like ours is not really to our benefit it is uh, we were renting out our independence to the oil companies and lo and behold we hit a financial crisis the fuel cost is now beyond the means of many of the water establishments to uh, to pump water so they cannot buy fuel to pump water and people are ending up without water there's a huge movement for solar power systems but these are not this move is not uh, coordinated and to the benefit of the general public, it's just individuals that are uh, getting the solar panels in, and this is increasing the divide between the haves and have-nots. In general, what's happening in our region, we are poorly reacting to the adaptate to, to what's required of us for adaptation. We are not sinking in the money ahead of time. We are not looking at our national action, national adaptation action plans properly and we are late very late we're focusing on other things that uh, we should not be doing that so real financing is not here yet i'll stop with this thanks thank you very much nadine for that uh, kind of a comprehensive overview of what's going on in terms of addressing different uh, climate adaptation issues uh, including the water the food uh, the geopolitical uh, issues as well. So thank you for that. Now I will uh, uh, turn the uh, speaker to uh, my colleague Mustafa, who is going to cover the climate uh, finance challenges and opportunities for the MENA region. Mustafa, the floor is yours. Um, hello, everyone. Uh, can Can you hear me clearly? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Perfect. Um, so first of all, thank you very much, Aisha, for the invitation. And I'm very glad to be among uh, an amazing group of uh, speakers. It's an honor for me to be there. Um, I'll actually, I, I'd like to echo many of the things that uh, Dr. Nadim has mentioned, because those are actually quite important. So the Middle East has been specifically pointed out as, as a climate change hotspot, which means that the region is going to be uh, impacted uh, basically at a higher uh, sense compared to other regions. Um, and it's not just the extreme heat or the droughts or the floods, but also there are others like uh, sea level rise. And uh, it, there's going to be a prolonged uh, impacts basically. And as Dr. Nadim mentioned many of these points, I'll, I'll jump right into the main topic, which is uh, finance, because adapting 
to those impacts is actually quite costly. And um, just to throw out some numbers to give a sense of how big this challenge is, and uh, I'm sorry, Dr. Nadim, but I'm going to use even larger uh, geographic area, but that's where the data is available. Um, so from an Arab country's perspective, there is a project under the UNFCCC that is called Needs-Based Climate Finance. Um, and they try to quantify the finance needs for certain regions to tackle climate change. And what they found is that for Arab countries, uh, their estimated finance requirements is somewhere around 450 billion US dollars by the year 2030. When you compare it to what is currently flowing to the region, that's somewhere around 6 billion. So their needs is 400, around 450. Right now they're getting around six. So there's a, a, a huge gap there uh, to be filled. And when you look even further into six, those 6 billion uh, US dollars, most of them are actually uh, going into mitigation rather than adaptation in the region. Um, and in addition to that, whenever countries in the region try to access uh, finance for, for, uh, for adaptation, they find a uh, very long process, uh, quite complicated process in order to access uh, those funds. Um, and then we also have to focus on another thing. There's uh, increasing debt in the region which is also happening as well globally. Um, to the extent that uh, the chief economist of the World Bank said recently that basically the main challenges in front of the World Bank right now are debt and climate change. And um, that, that's actually interesting. That's one of the things that I've been looking into. How can we finance, uh, finance adaptation in the region without having to wait for, for finance to come from developed countries. Because as we know, there's a hundred billion US dollar pledge from developed to developing countries. This has not been met. Uh, they did not uh, um, disburse, disburse this amount. And actually uh, quite a few countries are very unhappy with this situation and they're starting to lose trust in the process. Uh, to the extent that the V20 uh, group of countries, which is actually more than 50 countries, um, they are now considering not to pay off their debts until a, 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 an agreement is reached on, on how they can get climate finance. Um, so that said, and combining debt with climate, one of the tools that I uh, mentioned is debt for climate swaps. And the idea behind this is that it's a financial instrument that reduces a developing country's debt in exchange for a commitment or investment in national climate uh, adaptation or mitigation uh, programs. Um, and so what would happen in, in that case is a certain country would basically reduce another's debt uh, that could be actually a country, but it could be a multilateral development bank, depending on who owes that, uh, owns that debt. And in return, they would reduce it and the country uh, would, would improve their action or increase their action on, on uh, climate change. Um, 
this could actually, it's a very promising tool. UNESCO is putting a lot of effort into finding ways to actually implement it in the region. But of course, the, there always comes challenges because then the, the entities then own the debt, they want to have uh, very close monitoring into what is going to be, uh, the money is going to be spent on, uh, is it going to be spent on adaptation or mitigation? So of course, if it's a developed country, they would rather have it spent on uh, mitigation. And so there's um, quite a few big question marks on this tool. However, it's a tool that can reduce the debt of many countries in the region. And from, uh, from a recent IMF report, there's actually quite a handful of countries in the region that are at an alarming rate of debt. Um, the other tool that we could also use in the region is green bonds or green sukuk. Um, so basically, although those, those do not directly reduce uh, countries' uh, debt, but they are actually quite flexible uh, tools. And so they have the ability to reduce uh, shock crises. So for example, such as what happened with the COVID-19 pandemic, what is happening now in geopolitically, the, the Ukraine-Russia war. Um, and so it actually, the green bonds and green sukuk have proven to attract uh, private capital. Uh, and this money could actually be then invested into climate-friendly uh, projects. Um, I noticed that I'm running out of time, so I'll actually stop here and hand it back to you, Aisha. Thank you very much, Mustafa. I do have uh, two follow-up questions that I would like to ask later, so thank you very much. Uh, now I would like to move uh, to Dean Sharp uh, to speak about bringing climate action home. Thank you so much, Osha, and uh, thank you also, Nadim and Mustafa, because you've uh, outlined so many important issues that uh, I could also tie in. Um, but the basis of what I want to talk to you uh, about today is this um, problematic of, as uh, Osha was saying, bringing climate change home and making this shift from this international uh, financial uh, diplomatic often engagement and to bring climate conversations home to the levels of uh, the school systems the streets and cafes and workplaces of the region and these comments come off a research report that i published um, for the middle east center at lse called the quiet emergency experiences and understandings of climate change in Kuwait. Um, and before I dive into that, um, I did just want to pay homage to two giant intellectuals that we've actually lost recently. The one is Bruno Latour and the other uh, Mike Davis, who really made profound contributions to the struggle to change uh, our global system into something that is more ecologically um, sound. And I just wanted to kick off with a quote from Bruno Latour actually, because it also gets to the heart of what this Kuwait project was all about. Um, I mean, he said, um, my interest is that there is a disconnect between the science and the size of the threat that people mention about nature, the planet and the climate, and the emotion that this triggers. So we are supposed to be extremely frightened people but despite that, we appear to sleep pretty well. And this 
actually was very much where the starting point for the research that I did around Kuwait started, because I was intrigued as to why in 2016, when Kuwait, for all intents and purposes, I think recorded one of the highest temperatures on the planet. And it sparked a lot of Western media, uh, English language articles that cited this temperature and the fact that Kuwait is getting uh, to more uh, unlivable climates. And Nadine commented on that already, so I won't go into it um, again. But um, within Kuwait itself, there was uh, not that reaction. Um, and you know, so it was trying to think, well, how are Kuwaitis actually addressing um, these record-breaking temperatures? What is the discussion? Is it really simply just silence? Um, and so one of the things that we did was to do an analysis of the 2020 parliamentary elections um, and to look through media, uh, you know, the electoral campaigns, posters, priorities, um, Instagram groups and conversations, you know, really get into the, this um, uh, election to, to see the topics discussed. Out of the plus uh, 300 candidates, 326, I think, you know, we found one candidate that even mentioned climate change. And that was even only in passing. Uh, and, you know, we followed up with parliamentary candidate, electoral candidates to, you know, get to, to grips with why it, it's just not at all on the agenda. Um, and, you know, we got I think what would be uh, the expected types of response that there's a hierarchy of needs in Kuwait, um, there's a debt crisis, um, stuff like I went into that um, in a, a little bit. Um, there's, uh, you know, perceived uh, um, real allegations and resentment around corruption um, and, and societal tensions, uh, racial, gender, and so on. And, and climate change simply just. Um, could not get a look in and, and the candidates were very clear to us that um, raising climate change, even if they were uh, wanting to do it as, as candidates was clearly seen as uh, either a Western issue or a luxury one, or just didn't resonate with the hierarchy of needs that Kuwaiti citizens, because of course only citizens can um, participate in the elections and um, that is a minority of the population. Uh, can um, in uh, view it as as important, um, and you know, in terms of when we were trying to listen more intently as to why this issue, education and awareness, uh, often came up. But I did I do want to stress that you know, Kuwaitis, um, both citizens and non-citizens, it's a very globally connected place. They are very well aware across the demographic profiles of climate change. It's an accepted phenomenon. It, people are very well aware. They may not be able to explain in detail around greenhouse gas emissions and so on, but there is, uh, I can confidently say through the extensive research that we've done, uh, a good awareness that the climate is changing in Kuwait and that it is due to climate change. Um, and, uh, but with this having said, again through our extensive research it is not a topic that gets discussed in workplaces in schools and is seen as a priority um 
So there is, you know, and as the title of our report said, um, a quiet emergency. It, it is not discussed in uh, local context. Um, and it is in part the way that climate change is framed and engaged in the region, which is overly top down. Um, it isn't one that is in the opinion pages of local papers that is discussed in places of worship in, in schools uh, and among colleagues. But again, uh, going down and listening deeper uh, and questioning people, uh, there are great concerns uh, of public health. People raised you know, the issues of increased asthma, of um, heat stroke, um, uh, and epidemiological studies now are coming out by brilliant Kuwaiti researchers and doctors showing that uh, heat is leaving migrant workers um, you know, more vulnerable to death by multiple factors. Um, dust storms are creating increased vulnerabilities. We're getting new forms of inequality as well that we have to be attentive to in terms of indoor and outdoor work. Right? And even like this indoor and outdoor, you know, and this is perhaps where the intellectual work needs to come in as well, is becoming more complex because of course there are spaces inside that are away from air conditions and climate control that are also leaving um, those who are more vulnerable exposed to, to instances of death. Um, and you know, the, the work, uh, that needs to also be done for also adaptation and mitigation strategies to be properly grounded and adapted is to ensure that there is this locally grounded knowledge that is uh, engaged with how people are adapting and mitigating, even in the absence perhaps of climate talk, to ensure that they are tailored um, to uh, the to people's everyday lives. Um, and, and there is that absence at the moment um, within the region uh, of, of, that, of that research. And, and I hope our report and then the, the current research that we're building on that is, is contributing and, and, uh, uh, and will encourage more locally grounded municipal uh, politics around climate urbanism and uh, climate change in the region more broadly. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Dean. Um, uh, and I really also would like to ask some follow-up questions. But uh, so what I'm going to do now, uh, I'm going to ask a follow-up question uh, for each one of, uh, of you. Uh, and then um, we can go with the same order. So my question to Nadine uh, is, um, so you mentioned very clearly that we are uh, lagging behind in terms of adapting to climate change. And you've mentioned that there is a, the movement is going on now to prepare for the COP27. And this almost happens every year. All the governments and the countries put a lot of effort on you know, uh, communicating their climate uh, mitigation and adaptation ambitions and preparations for the COP. And I would like to really differentiate between the, the global governance of climate and the national governance uh, of climate. And uh, I would like to hear from you more if you could uh, tell us uh, uh, if this uh, movement to prepare for the COP is translating in any way to um, addressing those issues presented at the COP into national climate action. Uh, my question maybe is that, are we walking the talk at all when it comes to climate action at home, either in any adaptation area or finance? 
um, and maybe you can reflect uh, on Lebanon. Uh, and then the other question is, uh, the uh, you, you mentioned the water scarcity issues uh, in the Nile River and the drought that uh, hits Iraq uh, and uh, the issue with the Syria. Um, so from a research that I've also done, there, there could be some geopolitical uh, uh, and the security challenge that emerged from uh, the changes in the uh, uh, rainfall patterns and the, 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 the drought. Um, I wonder from your research if you could highlight more on the, uh, the regional governance uh, uh, that tackles climate security uh, in the region. If there are any governmental institutions that address the issue. Um, yeah, maybe, yeah, I have a third question. Maybe we'll leave it for later. And then my question uh, for Mustafa. Uh, Mustafa, you mentioned uh, two tools, financial tools, uh, the debt for climate swap and the green bonds. Uh, I wonder if these tools can be applied equally for the Middle East countries or are they going to differ from one uh, uh, country context to another? And then the interesting point you mentioned that uh, although uh, climate adaptation is a more challenge for the region than uh, the concern for the mitigation, but most of the finance is actually going for the mitigation, if you could uh, give some reasons why is that happening? Uh, uh, why not the finance go to the medicine adaptation? So I'd appreciate that. And then um, finally, uh, to you, Dean, um, uh, it is really interesting that you mentioned that the people are well aware of the impact of the climate change. And uh, uh, my question is, uh, you know, um, what would be like, especially for the youth, we both know um, kind of a pressure on the youth that because they will live longer and then they will experience the impact of the climate change more than anyone else. So, and you mentioned that the parliament doesn't pay enough attention to the issue of the climate change. So I, I wonder like what, what do you think the channels uh, that are available out there that could be used to mobilize uh, the, the interest and concerns of the youth to push for, you know, putting climate agenda on the top uh, of the governmental agenda? And uh, I'll leave it there. So maybe we can start with Nadim and then Mustafa and then Nadim. Thank you. Thank you, Aisha. Uh, yeah, it is. Uh, your questions are in, intriguing in, in, in many facets, if you will. Uh, I brought it down to global versus local regional governments on climate issues. Uh, again, here the, 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 the region is divided into those, into the oil producing and non oil producing countries, and that reflects in the riches that they have and their ability to auto self-finance or to uh, be sort of independent and, and uh, 
you know, uh, plot their own path forward and, and react to that. Uh, a lot of the uh, governments, Lebanon is, at, uh, is one of them, in the middle of them, if, if not, uh, you know, are incapable of financing uh, their uh, own uh, plans totally, especially now with the crisis that we are in. So a lot of the governance, uh, you know, Lebanon and most, most countries in the region have signed up to the Paris Agreement and uh, it's, it's uh, subsequent uh, uh, parts and articles and everything is sort of set in place. But then the funding comes in for you to implement what you have put in. And uh, as, as uh, Mustafa said, the money comes coming in, and you indicated the money coming in is mostly for uh, mitigation. And uh, mitigate really what? I mean, we are bearing the brunt in this region, and we're not producing as much CO2 or carbon into the atmosphere uh, as, 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 as uh, other countries. And we really need to start preparing our adaptation. So the governance is more geared, you know, you have everything in place for some kind of an adaptation, but a major chunk, if you look at the NDCs of many countries here, they are all for uh, mitigation efforts. So this is something that is that needs to be rectified. So there is a, uh, a, a globally driven agenda uh, to, for this in, in, in that it is reflected uh, incorrectly in our part of the world. And there are the me mechanisms are there uh, Dean, I, I really liked what you said about, you know, people are aware that climate is changing. They cannot point their finger at it totally. You know, what is the real cause? You know, it, it differs, but people know that the climate is changing and it's the climate, uh, it's due to human activities. Uh, th I'm using this to uh, move into your second question. Uh, in a study, we uh, and, and this is not reflected, as Dean said, in, in, in candidates going to parliament and talking about uh, climate. Uh, several successive governments in Lebanon have addressed climate in their uh, opening, you know, in, in their uh, accession statement. You know, when the government gets voted into, into parliament, they put their sort of manifesto. I hate that word, but that's the only thing I can think of now. They put their manifesto and climate is right there, but how much do people or parliament act on it? Not much. So in a study we were doing on the impact of, of uh, droughts on uh, security and, and, mo and mobility of people. And this is climate driven, uh, basically climate change as a basic driver for drought. People would note, and, and we did this in Lebanon and in Jordan, so the two separate communities in, in these two countries, those that we identified as uh, most likely to be impacted by climate change uh, and drought, people in there identified water scarcity not as a result of climate change. They said it's a, as a result of mismanagement of people, of the government. And then there comes up, uh, an issue that, uh, that, that keeps rising, the displaced people coming into both countries. They are useful, they are seen as useful additions to the workforce to some extent, and then they become competitors for resources at another. So tensions start rising. 
And what, what people, uh, what, what governments, the way they approach it, it is not that it is climate-driven security issue that needs to be addressed. No, it's highly political. For example, in Lebanon, it's, the country is divided between those that want the Syrians to stay until it's totally safe in Syria and those that want to send Syria back and uh, the Syrians back and irrespective. And the, the driver, in, in especially most recently with the cholera outbreak that we have experienced in, in northern Lebanon, it's driven, it is really the, 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 the epidemic that we're getting is from Syrians in North Lebanon moving down North Syria, migrating to North Lebanon and going back and forth across the border, bringing the, uh, the, the bacteria with them and infecting others. And this is what people don't see that the, the climate is reducing flows and forcing people to use contaminated water to irrigate and people are getting sick from that. That's an issue. People don't see it that way. They see it as movement across the border and we need to stop it. So the, the climate security link is still uh, nascent and it's still seen from the, uh, if you all want to say it, the military point of view as security, you know, police, army, et cetera, not as a, a socioeconomic uh, structure that needs to be built up so that, the that, that, that there is no reason for people to uh, take up arms and, and uh, lead to extremism. Sorry for taking too long. Maurice, thank you very much. Mustafa, would you like uh, to uh, reply to the question? Yeah, sure. Um, so regarding your first question on uh, how can the tools be used or can they do, be used by different countries? So in essence, any country can use any of the tools. But uh, realistically speaking, the least developed countries or country fragile economies are going to find it very hard to use green bonds, for example, to, to, to attract external uh, uh, investors, right? So it, it, it is very hard for them to do that. On the other hand, uh, low income and middle income countries could actually make the case to get some of their debt relieved. It's, hard, it's much harder for high income countries to do that. So I mostly recommend the debt for climate swaps for low and middle income countries and for regarding the, the green bonds and green sukuk for high income countries. And that's actually what we're seeing. That is what's happening right now. So you'll see that the UAE um, and sometimes also middle income countries like Egypt, those are the type of countries that are attracting the, the green bonds. Um, regarding your second question, uh, which was on why is finance flowing to mitigation rather than adaptation? So this is actually a question that I can talk about for hours, but I'll I'll try to be very brief and give some, like just a few of the very big reasons. The first one, if we're talking about uh, finance through, through, um, through uh, the, the GCF, for example, Green Climate Fund and others similar to that, it's mostly because this money comes from the, the developed countries and that's where they see the money should be spent. This is starting to change though. At least we're getting a sense that there might be a different discussion during the next uh, COP. 
Um, on the other hand, when we talk about private investments, for example, or investment through other banks, multilateral development banks and so on, um, the money is going to mitigation because mitigation could actually be profitable. So it is profitable and there is a return on investment when you invest the money in a renewable energy uh, power plant, for example, right, right? or a renewable energy uh, plant. But it's not very profitable to invest it in climate proofing a bridge. There's no return or there might not be uh, a, a direct return from that. One very important thing, then that's something that I actually worked on before moving to the UE, I used to look at why is finance not flowing to uh, water projects and uh, the different types of uh, one of the things that we kept hearing, hearing is that that's development, that's not climate. Okay, but that's like a quite a big issue because we still cannot like for for some organizations they they have a, a line they drew a line on differentiating what is climate and what is development and that's quite a big question mark because when you speak about water projects a lot of people would argue that this could be both so how do you differentiate whether it's going to be one or the other and I'll stop here thank you very much Mustafa now I hand it uh, over to Dean. Great, thanks, Aisha. Um, yeah, it's a really important question in turn, and part of our report focuses on the clear generational divide that exists with youth really taking up this issue. And clearly, you know, this is also, I, I'm very attentive to the way in which our respondents were framing climate change as a Western and luxury issue. And in the sense, you know, you do see the fact that, uh, yeah, the, the youth are clearly influenced by Western celebrities, social media, Instagram, right, in their concern for climate change. And they're taking it. And, um, it, it I'm, I'm not framing that message as a positive or negative thing. It's, it's just this was the data from the focus groups and interviews that we were doing. Um, and, and they were at the single parliamentary uh, candidate that did respond around climate change was to a youth at an Instagram forum um, pushing this issue. So there are uh, those uh, kind of it routes into to parliamentary debates and so on through. Uh, and when we talked to parliamentary candidates, again, it was um, their concern over the environment. Often their children um, were mentioned and referenced as to why they should take this issue more seriously. Um, but the second point I just wanted to emphasize, you know, in terms of which goes back to my original point of like, bringing climate change home and trying to make it more a part of the actual fabric, because it is not uh, suitable to get climate policy and interest just from Twitter and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, right? We, we want uh, a grounded, responsive, locally contextualized, uh, uh, and intellectually um, substantiated uh, climate knowledge in the region that also these youth are engaged with. And, and that, uh, you know, is the ambition. And that, I hope, is uh, where, you know, the, the conversation can go. Uh, I won't go into it, but clearly at the moment, there are quite deliberate blockades being placed that are societal, political, and intellectual that exists within the region to stop that from happening. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Dean. Uh, we do have a question in the chat box. Uh, 
Uh, I'll direct it to all speakers. Um, yes, so we, it's a, a question from Jihad al Busaidi. Hi, Jihad. Uh, Jihad is saying Oman has declared 2050 as a year for net zero. Congratulations. And then uh, her question is, can carbon credits work efficiently for Oman's situation and could it contribute to climate action? So uh, I direct this question to everyone, but uh, I also have another question and I'm cautious of time. I think we will conclude with those questions. Uh, my question is to the all speakers as well. Uh, so since uh, two Middle East countries are hosting the, the COP this year and next year, Egypt and the UAE hosting COP27 and 20, uh, COP28. Are you hopeful that these COPs will be uh, a changing uh, point for the Middle East when it comes to climate action at the national level? Maybe we can go the same round, Nadim. And then Mustafa, and then uh, yeah, great, good for Oman. 2050 net zero will be fantastic. Uh, but I, I am one of those people that hate this issue about carbon credit. It is, uh, it's, it's, it's not right. You know, you do what you have to do for your own country, and this allows the, the polluters to keep on polluting uh, ad nauseum. I whatever uh, formulation they come up with is something that I really do not appreciate. I would like each uh, country, each emitter to be responsible for their own emissions and not take credit for something that uh, somebody else is doing. Uh, that's what I want to start with uh, for, for the carbon credit system. Uh, this doesn't help uh, locally in a way. Uh, for uh, Middle East hosting COP, I, I, I hate to sound very negative. I'm not. I'm always optimistic at, at my core. But we've had two uh, COPs in the, from the Middle East. You know, we've had the Doha COP and the Marrakesh COP. Nothing much happened here. And uh, I don't see much happening uh, in, the, in, in the next two COPs because they are being held here. There might be something. There might be... Uh, some, you know, somebody in power might have an epiphany and then they'll start thinking, yes, we need to, to act more positively and strongly on, on, on climate action. But for now, I don't see much happening other than, you know, yes, we did a good cop, good for us, pat us on the back, and then we'll move on to the next one. That's mostly what's going to happen, I'm afraid. Thanks. Over to Mustafa or you. <laughs> Thank you, Nadir. Stop um, yeah, so uh, on the carbon credits part, so, so what the science tells us is that we have a very, very narrow chance now of achieving the 1.5 unless major climate action has taken place. So I do share uh, Dr. Nadim's reservations, but I do imagine that we actually want to achieve any of this. We will need to use all the tools at our disposals, although some of them <laughs> I'm, I'm not a big fan of, like negative emission technologies and so on. But I mean, it seems that there is no other way, right? And 
from the IPCC reports, we now know how bad it could get if we reach the two degree Celsius. So we really need to push for 1.5 with all the tools that we can have. Um, on whether the region is going to capitalize on hosting two COPs back to back. So it's true from previous experience that they, they didn't, but I think this time it's a bit different because climate has gone really high up on the agenda in general. It's becoming a very important topic for all countries. And we're also noticing, uh, at least I'm noticing a lot of action in Egypt uh, right now as they prepare to host the COP. Um, we're noticing a lot of action in the UAE as well. So I think, yes, they will capitalize. My uh, hope is that they keep building on this momentum. So not just put a lot of effort for a year or two while COP is there and then the, the effort fades away. There needs to be capacity building, there needs to be uh, awareness campaigns so that people actually take note of COP, take note of climate action, what needs to be done. And so they don't just put effort for one or two years and then it's done. No, we need to build on this momentum. Over to you. Thank you very much, Mustafa. Dean. As I'm the, the final commentator, and, and although we do not live in optimistic times, I, I am going to be a bit optimistic. Uh, I'm going to struggle to be, but I am going to be. Um, and the, the two optimistic points I will say is that although we live in very uncertain, it's not directly violent times, there is a seismic geopolitical and economic change going on. And within that change, there are opportunities, very clear opportunities for human society, for Arab society to adapt and mitigate the way in which we and our energy systems and our economic systems are run. We are in a new phase of globalization. I wouldn't call it deglobalization, but we are going to have a very different type of economic system and social system going forward. So there is an opportunity there. And the second point is to say that I do think it's a good thing uh, that COP is being held in Egypt and the UAE and that the climate conversation is, I think, growing. Uh, the youth are engaged on this issue. They want to be engaged in this issue. They care about, and, and I think even the older generation Although there is a uh, strong pushback still, there is a uh, recognition in the, in the Gulf countries, I think, about uh, a Norway model, and I hope they have bigger ambitions than that. But, um, and, you know, within uh, the region more broadly, there is just a strong realization that uh, the climate is changing and that climate change is uh, something that is uh, immediate and, and needs to be uh, addressed. Excellent. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Dean. And uh, yes, we, we finished on time. It is now uh, five o'clock our time. Uh, I really would like to say very much thank you to all speakers, Nadim, uh, Mustafa and Dean. Thank you very much for your time and for your insights uh, today. We really appreciate it. And now uh, uh, I would like to hand over 
to Dr. Michael Mason to convene the second panel uh, for today. Michael, it's, it's over to you. Thank you, Aisha. Thank you for finishing on time, exactly on time. Um, and I, I, I'll start by saying how much I really enjoyed that panel. Um, uh, my name is Michael Mason. I'm the director of the Middle East Center at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Um, thanks to, to, to NUS, to Aisha, to Michelle, and all their colleagues for, for inviting us to be part of this event, uh, which is a, a very, very timely and important. This second panel will follow the same format as the first in terms of the presenters and then questions discussion. Uh, it's titled COP27 Beyond, will the GCC leave hydrocarbons behind? That's the Gulf Corporation Council. And the focus is on this particular grouping of, of fossil fuel producers, the, the GCC, as having uh, particular climate change challenges both in terms of mitigation, but also from the traditional economic model that they have, which is the sort of uh, high sort of um, dependence, particularly on export uh, uh, revenues from the extraction use and, and sale of fossil fuels, where that also gives some particular uh, opportunities. And uh, uh, just to say very briefly that uh, to follow up on Dean's points, there is this question about the type of economic transition we're looking at into a uh, possibly, hopefully, a net zero world. And a couple of years ago, when Saudi Arabia had the presidency of the uh, G20 group of nations, it, it promoted the idea of, of a circular carbon economy, that somehow you might be able to decouple or, or de-link the uh, fossil fuel production and uh, anthropogenic global uh, greenhouse gas uh, emissions. This is a very, very live debate about whether this is indeed possible. And perhaps we will, we will cover this in terms of this panel. We have three uh, distinguished speakers in, in the panel. I shall now introduce them in turn. I uh, uh, thank you to the speakers for their time, the presenters. They'll have about five to six minutes each. Um, the uh, speakers, please uh, forgive me if I condense your uh, biographies because there are extensive biographies with all your many achievements, but I will, I will I'll probably condense in, in terms of the needs of time. So we'll go in the three speakers in turn. And again, welcome, welcome very much to this panel. Um, first presenter will be Professor Walid Khalil Al-Zubari. He's Professor of Water Resources and Coordinator of the Water Resources Management Programme at the College of Graduate Studies and also the UN Water and Learning Center for the Arab region, hosted at the Arab, Arab Arabian Gulf University uh, in Bahrain. He serves also as a member of the Permanent Advisory Committee for the Water Resources Council in the Kingdom of Bahrain. Um, he has extensive uh, experience and academic expertise across sort of water resources management um, and water energy food nexus. He's published uh, over 100 research papers in peer-reviewed journals, uh, attended multiple uh, uh, academic conferences, um, and uh, Professor Walid's uh, expertise in water resources governance, planning and management, uh, uh, and particularly the management also of groundwater systems is internationally recognized um, and look very much forward to what he's saying in terms of, of, of the panel uh, sort of uh, uh, focus. Um, I should also say, uh, uh, also, he serves as editor-in-chief 
of the Regional Arab Gulf Journal of Scientific Research, and he currently serves as the Vice President of the GCC Water Science and Technology Association and Chairman of its Scientific Committee, which is relevant to the uh, focus of the panel. Our next presenter, uh, Mr. Tanzid Alam, is Managing Director and Founder of um, excellent uh, uh, company, Earth Matters Consulting. It's a firm that he established in 2017 to address the climate crisis and human development cha uh, challenges. Uh, in that firm, he leads a team of experts to provide strategy and policy advisory services on climate change and sustainability for businesses, governments, and nonprofits. Uh, EMC uh, has clients across the Middle East, Europe, and Asia. Its clients include uh, sort of uh, uh, both governments, notice work for the UK government, uh, development agencies, GIZ, the German Development Agency, um, also for major NGOs, uh, Worldwide Fund for Nature, also work uh, provided services for NEOM and the uh, Red Sea Development Company, um, and also uh, advised real estate developers and sovereign wealth funds in the region on their climate change efforts. And this is a sort of uh, um, um, uh, uh, sort of contribution, I think, which is essential as we go forward in terms of the expertise across different uh, types of entities, states, uh, uh, corporations, and civil society. So, so welcome, Tanzid. And uh, 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 our last presenter, um, Dr. Suad Almanji. Uh, Dr. Suad is head of the risk management department at the Ministry of Education in Oman. Uh, she holds a PhD in geography, a fellow geographer. Uh, welcome, I'm a geographer in disaster management and community resilience from the UK, from the University of Leeds. Uh, um, she's published papers in disaster management. Um, also, uh, uh, notice with interest, Dr. Suad, she has an interest. Uh, in the uh, gender-related issues of disaster management, having recently published on the role of Omani women in disaster management in Oman. I haven't yet talked about that in terms of the uh, discussion today about if there are particular uh, gender-based considerations that we need to take into account in terms of climate change, uh, adaptation, mitigation, and the transition, the transition to a a low or zero hydrocarbons future. So with that in mind, again, and looking at the clock, we're gonna ask each of the panelists in turn, if possible, to speak for about five to six minutes to provide some perhaps key uh, themes on the, on the topic of the panel. And then we'll go to the uh, 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 questions. If you want to ask questions and you're online, you can uh, uh, send them to me in the chat box and I'll try and make time as much time as possible uh, in the second part of the panel to communicate uh, those questions. So firstly, over to you, Professor Walid. welcome. Thank you. Uh, let me at the outset, uh, you know, reiterate my thanks to the organizers for uh, uh, their kind invitation and uh, for providing me with the opportunity to, you know, voice uh, some points of view uh, regarding what will happen, and uh, you know, in terms of the climate uh, politics and so on. Um, honestly, I can't uh, answer your question. Will the GCC leave hydrocarbon behind? This is <laughs> this is not not an easy answer. But I can. I what I can do is I can um, present. Um, uh, one of the you know uh, sectors 
because you know climate change you know is related to a number of sectors industry transportation and water and energy and so on and so on and i will be i'll try to um, give a brief on on on, on the challenges faced by uh, by the water sector you know uh, and then uh, look at the interface between that sector and the climate change agenda and 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 what's needed to be done i'll try to get some you know opportunities uh, to do something about uh, mitigation as well as adaptation uh, in that sense. Um, you know, as a researcher, my job is to really um, uh, provide policymakers with uh, practical solutions uh, to fulfill their needs. And that's what I'm going to be trying to do or just give them an advice of where to go. If I'm going to go very quickly uh, on, if you look at the, uh, you know, the water scene in the GCC, you'll find that there are so many problems what we can and, and challenges, but we can really um, summarize them and uh, shortly, you know, that there is an increasing scarcity with time uh, due to the rapid uh, population growth, due to the accelerated, you know, socioeconomic development that we are, you know, experiencing now, which is unprecedented in any, any time uh, in this region. And we are having an increase in our water demands and as well as electricity demands. And we have to rely on non-conventional water resources like desalination to really provide this. With that, uh, with this reliance, we have to, uh, you know, desalination, uh, you will have to, you know, uh, burn more uh, fossil fuel. You have to, you know, have a lot of externalities coming uh, on, 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 you know, on the side. Uh, in terms of greenhouse gases emissions, as well as uh, polluting the, or, 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 or impacting the coastal and marine environment. And that's, you know, that's, uh, we do have problems like, you know, the groundwater uh, resources depletion, we are having uh, wastewater, uh, you know, inadequate reuse of our wastewater. But, but really, if you look at the, at the you know, at, uh, at the interface between, uh, between the climate, uh, agenda or action uh, and and, uh, and 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 the water sector you'll find that the crux of the matter is really desalination it is it is in the middle of, of of that that's the interface that we have to really you know focus on and because of the time we then we can go this way or that way just let's focus on that as you know uh, all these you see are signatories of the paris agreement and they have already committed their indices uh, and, and and lowering and they have already submitted their uh, you know uh, uh, national uh, determined uh, contributions to lower their uh, emissions. And just before COP26, they have uh, one week before that, they have also announced the carbon neutri neutrality uh, by the year 2050 for 60 for Bahrain, uh, 50 by, for UAE, 60 for uh, Saudi Arabia. But if I'm going to go and see how can, I, and can, how can we achieve these, you know, indices or targets or or contribute to the you know international agenda by reducing our uh, our greenhouse gases emission. We have two ways. We have to do. We have to go on, uh, you know, um, water uh, adaptation itself, uh, the uh, climate change adaptation in the, in, in the water sector, and with that you will find that there are some uh, adaptation with mitigation co-benefits. So if I would uh, adapt. I will have to reduce my losses. I have to reduce per capita water consumption. I have to reduce my leakages. I have to reduce a lot of things that I have to trim 
uh, of the inefficiencies. And by trimming that inefficiencies, because I rely 100% on, on desalination, I will be also reducing the, the production of, of desalinated water, which means reduction of the uh, in greenhouse gases emissions, you know, per, uh, uh, you know, per, uh, per country. That, that, that is one thing. The other thing is that with desalination, I mean, it's clear that we and desalination are going to be friends for a long, long, long time. It's not, we are not going to have another source other than desalination to really fulfill the needs of our population in terms of drinking water supply. So this SDG 1, SDG 6.1 will not be fulfilled by other means other than desalination. And this means that we have to focus on that desalination and see where are the problem. The problem with desalination that we are using fossil fuel uh, to burn, uh, you know, uh, uh, and then we are having a lot of greenhouse gas emission and we are having the externalities on the marine environment. So if, the only, I mean, logically, I would have to replace or decouple uh, desalination from uh, from fossil fuel through nuclear, through um, uh, renewable, uh, through hydrogen, whatever the, the energy source uh, would be, but not fossil fuels. So we, can, we do have less uh, greenhouse gases emissions. And we have to work also on mitigating the uh, externalities on our uh, coastal and marine environment. And that is can be done through a uh, uh, circular eco economy, which you just have just indicated that has been said by the by, by Saudi Arabia or by presented by Saudi Arabia and the, the G20, that um, a circular economy to utilize all this brine that's coming out, the hot and uh, rich in minerals brine, to be commercialized or be, to be used in, in a way or another instead of uh, dumping it into, uh, to the sea. That's you know my take on uh, within this short uh, you know period of time on 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 what what how can we move to a lesser hydrocarbon you know uh, climate. And thank you. you're muted maybe michael apologies i, I sometimes do that yes thank you professor walid uh yes i think there's also that, that that opens up all sorts of wonderful areas for discussion which we might come on to hopefully in in, in questions uh tanzid over to you thank you great thank thank you michael and thank you professor walid um yeah i'm assuming you can all hear me clearly um it's a really interesting topic that you mentioned today, you know, and is the GTC going to leave hydrocarbons behind? Um, to be very honest, I don't think so. Um, uh, just to be blunt about that, because I, I've been in the region now for kind of 14, almost 15 years, and it has shown a tremendous capacity for change in terms of embracing the climate change agenda. Um, with kind of it being recognized as increasingly a major issue at the top of kind of governments. And it's and, and the way in which these countries operate is it's very much top down. You know, the leadership kind of sets the vision and the strategy and they think long term and then others have to essentially fall into place. So that that has many advantages in terms of thinking about climate change and addressing it in the long term and the consistency. Um, However, you know, if you look at it practically, I don't know those who live in Dubai or I'm sure it's similar in other parts of the region. Um, the, the, the large car culture is something that will, has existed and continues to exist. 
you know, um, fuel inefficient cars on the roads. Petrol's pretty cheap, although now with rising oil prices, it's increased more. It's probably more than it's ever been in the time I've been here. But still, you can buy the petrol and burn it. And there's like kind of a, an imperative for some of the national oil companies to actually get an income from their own markets. So there's a lock-in, I think, into that resource, and it's going to be locked in for quite some time, the dependence on that. And and to a certain extent, I think it's going to continue because they've they've um relied on this to to develop the countries in the region. And you know, if they did, before they even discovered oil and gas, it was, you know, uh, if you look at a country like the UAE, it was quite poor kind of in Abu Dhabi it was essentially a fishing village. Um Dubai had more trade going through it. Um, but still the 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 revenues from oil and gas, you know, which kind of you know international oil companies and helped to facilitate the extraction of that, um, has really helped the countries to invest in its future and its well-being for its residents. Um, that means people have got jobs, you know, and then so a transition away from oil and gas, yes, it's crucial and they're recognizing they can't just rely on oil and gas as a sort of source of income will require people's jobs and mindsets to change as well. So that kind of just transition from an oil and gas sector perspective in this region is something that hasn't been properly thought through before. Um, like how do you train someone who's a career kind of oil and gas engineer to embrace something different, you know, renewable energy potentially, or, you know, is it looking more at things like carbon capture and storage because the geological expertise that you need engineering skills is more transferable so some of those things i haven't seen been fully kind of grappled with because i think that's important so people are given respect for the jobs that they've done to help develop the countries but also recognizing there's a new shift in direction towards a net zero future which will require a, a fundamental change in how the country's economies are are structured um what we're seeing as well is um that the national oil companies like Saudi Aramco and Adnoc, for example, are now beginning to market their oil as being lowest carbon per barrel of oil in terms of the intensity of the extraction of the oil to the point of export. But they're saying anything that a country, if it imports their oil, um, it's their problem how they use it. They burn it in their cars inefficiently. That's part of their emissions inventory. But Saudi Arabia and the UAE, for example, it's they're trying to market their oil as something that's a low carbon or a green barrel of oil, if, you know, whether you debate that term or not, where, um, uh, whether it can really be green or not. So that's an area they're going more into. So Adnoc, for example, has um, gone more, uh, used nuclear to, uh, has connected its facilities to the grid with low carbon nuclear electricity. Um, it's, in, you know, um, reducing gas flaring. It's beginning to, um, uh, it's beginning to also use carbon capture and storage. So that's part of its kind of program to say that, yes, the rest of the world can rely on our oil because it's slightly slower carbon than, say, tar sands in Canada. And that, I think, is quite an interesting competitive niche that they're trying to draw out for themselves. So whether you agree with it or not, I think that's an ideological kind of an aspect. But if you know, um, from an equity and justice perspective, if you are to say that countries like the US in, and in Europe, in Canada, for example, they should draw down, you know, reduce their exports of oil and gas potentially, and then maybe the rest of the world should rely more on the oil and gas from this region, from the GCC. 
So they're beginning to position themselves in that way as kind of the last people standing. Um, now, I haven't actually talked at all about the, the paper um, that we've had published recently with um, kindly through Aisha's team and so on. Um, but, uh, but obviously, on the other side as well, the countries in the GCC face pretty profound impacts and risks from climate change. All the classic areas that have already been mentioned, like, you know, rising temperatures, increased flood risk. I mean, just to give you facts on that one, with flood risk in particular in Cheddar in the 2009 and 2011 floods, it, it was estimated to have caused between three and five billion dollars of damages and were registered as the worst floods in 30 years. Um, in Oman, Cyclone Gonu in 2007, um, uh, esti it was estimated to about 27% of the capital city, Muscat, was without power. And 90% of all roads were affected and 49 people were confirmed dead. So that's pretty profound impacts that we're seeing. And we'll, you know, the science shows that it's going to get only more intense in line with the rest of the world. Um, so, so we've been looking at some of these sorts of issues before as Earth Matters. Um, it is something, you know, where it's a concern to see that there is a lack of focus, I'd say, and prioritization of the vulnerability and adaptation aspects of climate change here. You could argue that, yes, the GCC countries have the resources to invest, but what we've seen is that, that there's a lack of capabilities in across different government departments to grasp what climate change means, uh, looking at models and risk analysis, for example, and to try and prioritize what they should adapt to. Um, there's plenty of opportunities around that, you know, the cost benefits of investing in adaptation versus the benefits it provides is huge. You know, like the Global Commission on Adaptation have shown wow, how much, you know, your benefit to cost ratio could be like nine to one, you know, for different types of investments in adaptation measures but it's not being translated yet into prioritizing climate change on their kind of national agendas yet, or at least adaptation, you know, I'm talking about. So I'll stop there. I won't go into our recommendations yet from our paper, but I wanted to just frame it for you in that way, but I'm happy to dive into things a bit more. Thank you very much, uh, Tanzeed. And again, opening up um, lots of possible uh, uh, questions there and issues around the notion of what would be a, a just transition for the GCC uh, economies and societies. So now we move on to Dr. Suad. Welcome. Uh, hello, good afternoon. Uh, talking about uh, climate change and the impact of climate change uh, in the society, maybe I'll, I will focus on this area. Um, uh, as we note in the in the last few years, that uh, the tropical storms and flood was the the main uh, disaster related to climate in in Oman, and um, uh, based on the records, we we note in in Oman that the tropical storms with high degree, high intensity uh, also increased in, uh, in Oman and uh, the landfall of these uh, tropical storms was in uh, 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 high populated areas in, uh, in, in the north and in south Oman. Um, the country 
um, usually when uh, any tropical storm facing lots of uh, risks, uh, financial risk, uh, risks related to the people, uh, 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 people are losing their uh, houses, building uh, infrastructure, and uh, all this uh, was um, linked to the climate change, the increase in the intensity, even the IPCC uh, reco uh, report, the last IPCC report uh, mentioned that if the in the last few uh, in the last decade uh, few uh, last forty years uh, the, uh, the the IPCC mentioned that the the temperature if the increase uh, the there is a probability that uh, the intensity the uh, the probability of uh, high intensity uh, tropical storms will increase by about 23% in the next few years. Um, uh, maybe by 2050, we will have more uh, tropical storms with degrees four and five. And this will uh, cause impacts, high impacts in our uh, community, our infrastructure, and our um, uh, financial resources as well. Um, uh, the carbon emission uh, uh, has a big relation with the, this intensity of tropical storms. Uh, it affects the, um, we have something in uh, the tropical storm, we call it the, the wind shear. Uh, the vertical wind shear. Uh, uh, there is a, a relation between the high in, uh, emission and uh, the uh, the vertical wind shear, and uh, this um, this is one of the reasons that uh, the, the uh, people are, um, are the researcher or the scientists in uh, in this area are uh, discussing and how can. Uh, we reduce the emissions so uh, the, the, we can control all these risks in, uh, related to uh, climate and, uh, um, and meteorological issues. Um, in Oman, uh, recently they uh, announced uh, uh, by the degree of the Sultan uh, for the net zero carbon by 2050. And uh, they have uh, uh, different plans for uh, this uh, to achieve this goal by 2050 by uh, like the transition to uh, the, uh, the green power, the sustainable power, like uh, hydrogen and uh, uh, wind and uh, uh, power uh, in, in Oman. Um, also, I, what I think is that it is important for uh, 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 the other institution, maybe they they need to start what we call it climate proving for development, like in power sector se sector or in water sector. They need to do like a risk assessment for what could happen if this uh, happen in the, uh, if the climate change increase or uh, the emission increase. How could this affect our infrastructure or our in development in in Oman? Um, uh, this is what I have. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Suad.
um i yes and i i i i i think the um we can't separate the sort of the obviously the climate change impacts from the means and vision by which we transition to a uh, a low carbon sort of future because we, we will be dealing we'll be dealing with those impacts during that transition so i think that's really important to to highlight uh, that we have to take that into account um what i we will follow the same format as the previous panel perhaps maybe i i, I could start off maybe with a, 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 a questions for the panelists and then we'll open up i've, I've got one question at the moment um, so if anybody else wants to ask any questions uh, um, who are attending, please uh, communicate that to me. Um, I think in terms of the panel uh, focus, there's, 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 there's a major, major challenge that we've got. It's a major economic geopolitical challenge um, that will set the, the pathway for the future for the peoples of the planet, uh, which is what will we do with fossil fuels? and um, the uh, couple of uh, last week, European Parliament endorsed uh, something called the uh, um, Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty, which basically argues for the phasing down, the rapid phasing down of fossil fuels. Uh, we know that the GCC countries, according to the uh, most recent uh, uh, energy report from BP, the GCC countries hold about a half of the proven oil reserves in the world and 40% of the proven uh, 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 natural gas reserves. So the question then becomes, um, how do we deal with this uh, transition? And, th th and the, key, the key question, which um, um, uh, uh, Tanzid and Professor Walid sort of highlighted is, is it possible to move forward under this sort of uh, uh, circular carbon economy where you can continue uh, uh, producing fossil fuels? It's clearly within the uh, vision of the GCC states, those that are uh, producing fossil fuels for export, that they wish to continue and they plan to continue producing fossil fuels. And this is the big challenge. Is that possible? Is it possible to produce uh, so-called green, green fossil fuels um, and uh, uh, decouple or, or, or somehow take away the sort of greenhouse gas emissions or say it's responsibility of the end user and there's there's another concept out there in, in the debate at the moment the idea of of fugitive emissions that the circular carbon economy can can phase out so-called fugitive emissions which is anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions so somehow you're capturing or reusing the carbon so it's a big big question i'm sure we can't do with it in in half an hour but if i just start off with a, with, with a couple of questions for our panelists thank you very much for your contributions uh, uh, Professor Walid, I was very interested in your discussion about water adaptation uh, uh, to climate change in terms of what we do with water and some of the ways in which there might be some mitigation co-benefits from that. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that in terms of particularly, I know you work, you work on the water energy food nexus around, for example, food security for the GCC states. How is this achieved uh, uh, in, in this transition? Uh, Tanzid, I, I, um, as I said, I, I very much like that, that this, the idea of thinking about this in terms of a just transition and what that means. And I, 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 I took note particularly of um, the, the expertise that you said there is in the region, 
the geological sort of economic expertise, which might enable that scaling up of carbon capture, utilization and storage, which many across the world, many activists, particularly to society uh, people, some countries are quite skeptical of. And I think that that opportunity might uh, not just be for the GCC countries, there could be a global opportunity there in terms of that expertise. So I wonder if you could just say a little bit, please, about um, what you see as, I know it's a big question, in terms of carbon, carbon capture, utilization and storage. Um, do, do you think this is something that will be a game changer? Because many out there are skeptical, but particularly in the, in the Gulf states, there is an expectation that it will scale up. We will see the scaling up of CCUS uh, in, in, at the, the necessary level to try to sort of achieve this circular carbon economy. And Dr. Suad, um, I was very interested in um, sort of comments about having to do with these impacts of climate change in terms of resilience, community resilience. And I, was, I think it'd be real, uh, very interesting if you can perhaps say a little bit, I know because this, this paper was published in Arabic, your, your recent uh, paper on the role of Omani women in, in disaster uh, management and resilience uh, uh, in Oman and beyond, and what lessons that might have in terms of, of I know this, this, so the UN speak would be gender mainstreaming, of course, of climate change, sort of uh, adaptation resilience. But if you could say something about how you see the, the, the role of women as uh, having a, a, a more prominent role, perhaps, in terms of the, some of the planning around this transition. Okay, so those are my three questions. We'll go in the same order. So Professor Walid first, thank you. Yeah, uh, thanks, uh, Michael. Um, I, you have you have actually posed two questions. One is the is the is the adaptation with the mitigation co-benefits, and the other one is the food and the, and the water you know nexus that we also have the energy actually part of of, of that. But uh, let, let me start by saying that you know uh, for the first question there was I I, I was invited to to talk uh, during. Uh, uh, Cairo Water Week 2021 uh, on, on, on a very interesting session called Watering the Indices in the Arab Region. Watering the Indices in the Arab Region, which is uh, identifying where can the water sector help in uh, you know, fulfilling the commitments of the indices of the Arab countries. And uh, if you go to countries like you know, in the Mashriq or, 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 or Maghreb or, or, or even Egypt, you you have to squeeze you know the water here and there so you can you know see the relationship. But in, in, in the GC it's very clear. Um, uh, you, most of the water you are you are using is, is is produced by you know intensive energy intensive desalination, uh, which is using fossil fuel. Um, and if you look at the at, at the at the consumption uh, you know pattern. Uh, and the efficiencies of, of, of water consumption and the efficiency of water supply and, and the distribution network, you'll find there is a huge potential for reduction. I mean, if you are talking about 500 liter per capita per day uh, and 700 per liter per capita per day and, and sometimes 1,000 uh, liter per capita per day, I mean, that's a huge amount of losses that you are having, and this is not an efficient thing. So that's one part. The other thing, if you look at the distribution network and you find that there are, you are having something like 30% losses 
of of the water before it went to the you know consumer that's also a huge potential for savings so if we can work on the per capita water consumption and make it reasonable and if you look at the benchmarking of the leakage allowed leakage and the you know the best uh, practice you'll find there is a huge potential for reducing that and if we can do that and if you can do that, and actually the cost of that, that's not that much. Uh, you know, if you want to reduce it, it you will save a lot of, 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 of things. Among them, the greenhouse gas emission and the production that you do. So that's one side that the GCC have to work on. Uh, uh, look, looking at the demand management and the efficiencies in the supply. This is this is very important uh, aspect that we have to look at. The other issue is that, uh, you know, the, the food, the energy, food, water nexus, which is something like, you know, a um, uh, little bit complicated issue. But let me just explain to you that the GCC don't rely on their uh, own uh, food production. They have that represent only ten percent of their of their. Uh, I mean, at, at best, it is ten percent of their of their food uh, food needs. The rest is actually is being imported from outside. And also some uh, foreign, uh, you know, agricultural investment that you, you you go to a country and you buy the land, or you, or the or the country gives you the land, like Sudan gives provides the GCC countries with with a piece of land and say, okay, you you um, this is your land, use it, invest in it, it's a very low rent or free of charge, and then you know you use it as as a way of an Arabic integration, you know, you know, policy as well as. An investment, you know, for the for the Sudanese people to, you know, to have jobs and so on and so on. So, uh, the, the the problem is that if the system is going nicely and linear, like it used to be before, you know, COVID, before the Russian Ukraine war, the, there was a conviction that yes, this is going to be the situation. But when when COVID started happening, when uh, the Russian you know, Ukraine war and the supply chains and the food supply chain started to be disrupted. Um, again, we went back again, wait, wait a minute. I think we should start growing our own food too. And we have to have a, we have to increase our percentages of that to be in the, to be secure. Now, I don't mind that. I, I don't mind that, but I, I mind, uh, you know, practicing the traditional primitive irrigation or agricultural systems uh that's been done now and we have to shift uh, our agricultural sector to an industrial you know uh, sector by using modern agricultural system if, instead of these primitive ones that we are doing here you really can make a lot of saving of water as well as you can increase your production maybe 10 times so uh, there is no way the gcc countries can provide their own food that's they are living in the desert this is this is if, if God was, you know, wanted to have those countries to be agricultural, would have provided with a river or with a fertile land, but it doesn't. We are in the middle of the desert and we are have to make everything artificial. And to make it artificial, we cannot continue the traditional agricultural systems. We have to move to the hydroponics, smart agriculture, you know, all these things that they are doing. And I think the GCC have started doing that and they are investing in, in, in UAE and, 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 and Bahrain and, and Kuwait and even Qatar and, and Saudi Arabia and to going to that system, that this is the only system that you can do. That system doesn't consume a lot of, it consumes a lot of energy, but it can be easily, easily offset by renewables because the energy you need, it's not that like the energy you need in desalination. So these are the two things that you have to look at 
modern agricultural systems, uh, not modern irrigation system, modern agricultural system where you have smart precision agriculture. And on the other side, you have to reduce your, your losses and inefficiencies in the supply and the demand side. Per capita reduction, leakage reduction, that will you know, alleviate the situation a lot and will give you a little bit of degree of sustainability in the future. And that's, you know, that's, that's the only way to go, in fact. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Waleed. And I thank you also for reminding us also that, you know, that, that there's sometimes been an assumption, at least in European sort of discussions, that somehow the world is peaceful and the transition to a, to a sort of low carbon uh, zero emissions future exists in a world which has an ordered peaceful community. And one thing the Ukraine uh, Russian Shock, war has shown us that we have, you know, and these can be incredibly disruptive of global supply chains, these types of events. Um, so thank you for reminding us about that. Tanzid. Sure, great. No, thank you. Um, actually, just I wanted to pick up on that last point you mentioned, uh, Michael. Um, you know, I've been seeing in the news, you know, kind of various European leaders coming to the region cap in hand, trying to get some kind of guarantees that oil and gas will still be supplied from this region given the, the crisis in, in Ukraine, you know, and um, so that kind of, again, you know, it's on one side, you know, if when the COP circus arrives, kind of people calling for the region to leave their oil and gas in the ground, and at the same time, the politicians are coming here and asking, oh, please keep the taps on here because we really need it. So there's there's a complete kind of disconnect, and that needs to be, I think, addressed quite head on. You know, what, the, what are the priorities? How do we actually support the countries in this region to ensure they can remain a reliable supplier of oil and gas? If that's the way they want to go, what does that mean in terms of countries like the US and Canada, for example, kind of not actually exporting and drawing down their oil and gas industry there? So there, there's some pretty big questions on equity, I think, and just transition that hasn't really been unpackaged here. And whether the COP will present an opportunity for that or not, I, I really don't know, to be honest. There, there are these kind of oil and gas climate initiatives, uh, the oil and gas climate initiative that was established, which includes some of the major oil and gas um, companies who, who I don't know if they're addressing these sorts of topics, basically. Um, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't want to, you know, ring the bell of the oil and gas industry by any means. Yeah, I've been working on climate change for a long time, so I'm very passionate about the topic and wanting to see a proper solution to it. When it comes to your question about kind of jobs and expertise, I'd say definitely that kind of ability around and, and kind of innovation on carbon capture and utilization and storage and whether the CO2 can remain on the ground and monitoring and tracking that um, identifying the right sites is probably something that this region could really um, kind of get a niche and a head in as well. Now, it all goes down to carbon accounting, um, because I know that, for example, the way ADNOC has been doing it in the UAE is that they're justifying the economics of it by saying that we're enhancing the recovery of oil as a result of injecting CO2 underground. But if it's truly circular, if that oil is then used and burnt, it's not circular. Yeah. So you're kind of, it still needs to be accounted for as part of the overall life cycle carbon emissions to claim whether it's a circular carbon economy, so to speak. Because um, economies are also based on exports and imports and trade. So you can't just say we stop at the export points, but kind of thinking about what, you know, if China's importing that 
green barrel of oil and using it in their vehicles. That has to be accounted for as part of a system accounting of carbon. Um, the other interesting area that I'm kind of, um, you know, I'm a bit of a kind of nerd and I like reading about this stuff. Um, in, in Oman, there's been some interesting research done about um, peridotite rocks in the Hajar Mountains. Um, this is really interesting. These rocks have basically been proven over time to absorb CO2. And, um, and, and it's getting investment in this. There's been researchers kind of looking at this and there's a, there's a school of thought around whether if you can saturate seawater with CO2 and then pump the seawater underground into these rocks, it could be a major store of CO2 emissions. So that's, there's other ways of storing CO2 that the geology and the natural kind of environment of this region could lend itself quite well to. So kind of this area around innovation, looking at what resources they have could extend to that. And if you think about it, if there's a good, strong global price on carbon and Oman is, could be a potential host for stores of carbon, that could be a really good thing for this economy. So how can these sorts of mechanisms on kind of trialing these and seeing how the, the carbon drawdown technology could work in kind of, for example, the Omani context that I don't think that's been looked at yet in terms of how it could be scaled up. So that could generate a whole new area of skills and expertise in, in the region. Um, sorry, the final point I think is to do with this emerging kind of a discussion around the hydrogen economy in the region. So Saudi Arabia and the UAE and Oman as well are looking at generating more green hydrogen or all you know the different color palettes of hydrogen, which I don't know all of them. Um, but reusing that hydrogen in heavy industry, which is quite carbon intensive, could, could be quite an interesting avenue for the countries here to look at um, decarbonizing on the pathway to net zero while also having an export revenue that can potentially displace oil revenue and gas revenue in the future. So those are some of the, the areas that I think certainly worth looking at from a just transition perspective. Thank you, Tanzid. I will. I will certainly look into that. I didn't know about that that research on the on the rock formations in Oman being uh, having great potential in terms of uh, um, uh, carbon uh, sort of storage. So thank you for that, um, Dr. Suad. If if you could say something um, um, about the role of women in Oman, perhaps in terms of uh, uh, climate change sort of preparation, adaptation, and also maybe thinking about the wider the wider idea of a just transition in the GCC economies, and if there might be some, some sort of issues that we can consider in terms of the uh, increased role of women. Thank you. Okay. Um, about uh, the role of uh, Umani women, uh, our research was about uh, uh, um, how uh, the Umani women are engaged in the disaster management system in Oman. And uh, it's, uh, uh, we think about uh, this research because of um, the UN um, um, priorities in Sendai that there is uh, gender equity for disaster management and risk reduction. And uh, what we found it uh, uh, in Oman and uh, basically in uh, globally maybe this uh, issue that usually uh, the men think that the women cannot do the big job in disaster management. And um, 
because uh, they believe that they are one of the most uh, vulnerable uh, 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 people and um, based on the gender, they are highly vulnerable, uh, uh, socially vulnerable to the disaster. Uh, but what we found it uh, when we uh, do our research and uh, we do a, a survey uh, for a, a more than, uh, for about 500 person uh, from men and women, uh, we found that when we asked them about how can they help during disaster, uh, we found that most women, they have this ability of uh, helping uh, in a very local level in houses or in their local community uh, by helping their families, by helping their neighbor, neighbors uh, during any disaster if they need. Uh, we found that uh, the women, uh, they have uh, more um, ability to learn the first aid. They want to learn first aid because they believe that it will help them during emergencies or disasters uh, more than men. Um, and it was interesting that we found that women, they want to learn first aid more than men. It was strange for me. Why is this? But we believe that uh, maybe because they have this concern about their, their kids, about big people, uh, the elder people in, in their family. Uh, also, we found that uh, the women uh, during uh, any disaster, uh, in the pre-disaster, they have this high concern about the food. So they are thinking about uh, the food security during disaster. So they believe that they need this and that more than uh, men. So they have this ability for uh, providing the needs uh, the, the list of the needs, what we needed during the disaster and what we don't need it. And mostly they're focusing on bread, milk, like that, uh, especially if they have little kids. Um, also, we found that um, there is some challenges for the women uh, to, uh, to be engaged in uh, uh, in disaster management system in Oman. And it, this challenges we noticed from men, basically they believe that uh, women cannot do this because it's too dangerous for them. If there is a disaster, they're supposed to be in shelters or in safe places. Uh, and this uh, should be done by men, not by women. And uh, also they believe that uh, because of um, the religion and the culture, uh, men should do this and this is one of the challenges that why don't we don't have too many women in disaster management system in Oman and um, uh, um, we give some recommendation for this uh, uh, like better training and uh, development for women to be able to at least be in a safe places or in a safe level during disasters, they have to be um, psychologically uh, and um, socially uh, developed to, uh, to, uh, to be able to, to act during disasters. 
because we found that uh, this is one of the challenges that sometimes uh, women during disaster become more panic because of the risk than men. They be, be afraid of what would, could happen to the kids, what could happen to uh, their elder people more than uh, men. Uh, uh, it is important we, uh, to increase the public awareness about uh, the disasters in Oman and uh, its impact in the community. And um, uh, the awareness should be uh, in uh, many dimensions, in uh, uh, economically, financially, uh, socially, uh, psychologically, uh, because what we know that uh, after the disaster uh, and everything is settled, some people, they have this uh, post-disaster panic or psychological problems and no one take care of them. And uh, we found this very high between women and kids. And um, this is one of the issues that it needs to be focused in Oman, so to make uh, the community or the local community more resilient during the disaster. And uh, also um, uh, to be able to uh, um, manage the risk better uh, in the future. About the climate adaptation, uh, actually we didn't ask them about the climate adaptation. Uh, uh, we focused on the disaster uh, it's related to, to the climate, uh, tropical storms, floods, and things uh, about uh, what could happen during this disaster, how to deal with this, the, uh, this issue. And uh, yes, what we found is that um, the role of Omani women during disaster is limited in, in the very local scale and in the high scale, in the international scale is still limited and uh, they need to be uh, empowered more uh, in the future in this area. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for that, Dr. Suad. Um, and also thank you. thank you for highlighting this, this issue about vulnerability. Um, and this actually, I've, I've got a couple of questions. Apologies if I can't ask them all. But the, the uh, 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 I'll read the question now. Um, this was from Jihad al Busaidi. I think yes. adaptation is more a national issue than mitigation. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, that's don't right. Think, don't you think that countries that are more vulnerable to climate change, such as Oman and other countries in the region, should raise their voice internationally and drive the commitment towards adaptation uh, finance? So in terms of, I think, the, the collective political sort of mobilization of, of the Arab countries, if, if whether through the, the Arab League or G77 sort of involvement, maybe within UNFCCC. Is any of our uh, uh, speakers like to, to, to uh, respond to that? Sure. Sure, Tazi. I'd have a start and others can jump in, obviously. Um, absolutely, I think it is a national issue in some sense. Um, I think you develop national adaptation plans, um, but also there's some pretty common regional vulnerabilities to climate change, which um, would benefit from, you know, even just efficiencies in investment in research. You know, if there was a regional weather center 
which could help with developing common models for use across the region to assess the risks and vulnerabilities. That would be quite interesting uh, to, to do something like that in the region. Um, I think when it comes to the COP as well coming up in Egypt and also the one in the UAE, um, COP26 agreed this kind of global goal on adaptation and um, and that will have a lot of focus. And um, I think, you know, some of the research that we've done shows that, um, yes, countries in the GCC have adaptation in their nationally determined contributions, but very few of them have translated them into national adaptation plans, let alone the financing that goes into implementing those plans. So, um, you know, just in confidence, you know, one of the um, countries we were interviewing, you know, in the GCC, um, they developed a national adaptation plan, but actually they, um, uh, because of COVID, that plan, the, the funding associated with that was taken away for them to implement it. So this shows that it's pushed down the pecking order adaptation. So I think raising the voice kind of nationally is really crucial to ensure that investment occurs and you don't just have a nice shiny report that gathers dust. Thanks. Thank you very much, Tanzi. Um, I, Walid. Yeah, I, I, you know, last week or maybe ten days ago, I, I, I came across uh, an, an article in the Economist uh, about uh, again the the carbon, uh, you know, issue or the hydrocarbon. Maybe probably is posing the same question that this panel is is is, is causing, but. From what I have got is I think um, there is a scenario that uh, the GCC countries will continue uh, and will accelerate, uh, you know, oil production for the next 20 years. And then after that, it will, they will start, uh, it's like, you know, getting some time to really adapt for the, uh, you know, post, post oil era. Uh, or adapting or, or, or trying to restructure their economies uh, toward that, uh, you know, uh, to an economy without oil. But I think that from, from the article, I think it's 2040, something like, like 2035 will be, uh, there will be an acceleration for oil production, no, no reduction. But then after that, there will be a, a drop in that when you are really prepared and your economy is, is right. And if you look at, at countries like, you know, Bahrain, um, just doesn't have a lot of oil. It has already started to, to move to that direction. Dubai has already started to move that direction. They don't want to have the oil as their uh, main, main source of income. And uh, that's, that's how, 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 how natural resources has been exploited that you, you maximize the benefit from from that natural resources until it depletes, and by by that time you are preparing yourself for something like you know post that natural resource, and that's uh, that's how things will go. I don't think there will be a quick uh, shift, uh, but there. But what I, what I would like to say is that I think the region has to really invest in research and development. It's uh, it really lacks uh, the, this part is not that much. Been taking care and uh, you can't import technologies. I mean, you can't buy technology. You have to really invest in, 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 uh, in your institutes, in research centers, and try to find your own solutions. Um, and uh, from the negotiation of the COP that, you know, the, the GCC were, were negotiating in the previous COPs that uh, we need the technology. We need to have to transfer the technology to us. This is not going to happen. I mean, there is no way that uh, the West will give you the technology 
uh, you know, just free of charge. And I think what we have to do is really to invest in our R and make an R and D in desalination, R and D in and and carbon capture or sequestration. All these things need need to be really, you know, active research areas for us, so we can really face the next, you know, twenty years a little bit with little bit comfortable. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I, I apologize to those who also want to ask questions. I think we have to finish now. But Aisha, I noticed you were, had a question that you were uh, uh, asking about, given that the GCC countries rely on hydrocarbons for economic revenues, and that these resources are also being used for climate change adaptation. How do they balance this low carbon energy transition and their needs for resourcing adaptation resilience, which I think uh, 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 Professor Walid has just sort of answered in a way by saying, well, in part by continuing to produce uh, hydrocarbons and, 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 and continue that resource stream. And then over time, 10, 20 years, moving into that sort of transition to a different economic structure, which will also then provide the resources for that continued adaptation, because it is a, it's a continual project climate change adaptation, which will get even more challenging over time. So thank you very much for, for, for the speakers, uh, for, for, for the panel. Shall I move back to you, uh, Aisha, just to say thank you for uh, on behalf of the uh, NUS? Well, yes. Uh, so thank you very much, Michael, and to the speakers in the panel uh, too. Uh, yes, we come to the conclusion to the webinar today. Uh, yes, thanks very much uh, to the Middle East Institute uh, events organizer Sharon Kong, and also to the uh, co-organization from the LOC Middle East Center. We appreciate it really, and we. I would like also, uh, on behalf of the Middle East Institute, to say thank you to all the speakers who are uh, give us their time and shared their insights uh, today. Uh, with that, we uh, conclude uh, the session for today and. Uh, I uh, hope to see you next time. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you.